Hello and welcome. I'm Dr. Adam Dorsey, a psychologist in Silicon Valley, and I am the host of Super Psyched, a podcast dedicated to supercharging your life. Each episode contains fun, high-quality interviews with experts looking at psychology from all angles. Super Psyched is your tool to get more of what you want in your life and less of what you don't. We hear a lot about ADHD these days, and yet there are misconceptions about what it actually is and what a person can do if they are diagnosed with the condition. What may surprise people is that there can be many great gifts that often accompany ADHD. My guest, Dr. Lara Hanos-Webb, is a psychologist in private practice in Walnut Creek, California, and she specializes in the study and treatment of ADHD in both adults and children. She has written many highly acclaimed books about ADHD. The School Library Journal said that her work provides a clear and stimulating guide for teens to sharpen their ability to control their thoughts and actions. I am a fan of Lara, and I just listened to the audio version of her book called Brain Hacks. I found it to be a superb compendium of easy to implement tips on boosting any person's brain, whether ADHD is in the mix or not. In this interview, Lara goes into depth about what a person can do if they or someone they love has an ADHD diagnosis. I am so grateful to Lara for her work and for joining me on this interview. And I am confident you will learn a lot from her as she shares her incredible gems. Dr. Lara Hanos-Webb, welcome to Super Psyched. I'm psyched to be here, Adam. Oh, right on. I'm so <laughs> glad. So let's first off go with what this is all about. Back when I was a kid, even though it may have been listed somewhere in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, it wasn't in the common vernacular and it started entering the zeitgeist, I would say, in the 90s. And there was a lot of help that came about as a result of that from where I sat. There's also a lot of misinformation about what ADHD is and was. And I was wondering if you could break it down. What is ADHD and maybe what is it not? Yeah. So ADHD is a diagnosis in the Diagnostic Statistical Manual. And one of the reasons I mentioned that is because it's such a big topic these days, as you're talking about so much prevalence, that some people, and we, many people are embracing the gift approach that some people have said it's not a mental illness. And I have to say that by definition, that's what it is. And that's where we find it. We find it in the DSM. And originally it was a developmental disorder. And what's so interesting about it <laughs> was that it was only a developmental disorder. And for a long time, I think it was about 2014, you had to call an adult ADHD not otherwise specified because we considered it you know, to only affect kids. And there was this idea that people grew out of it. Right. And so, and then basically there's three clusters. There's the attention deficit, there's the hyperactivity cluster, and there's the impulsive cluster. And you can have a diagnosis of ADHD without the hyperactivity impulsive, or you can have a diagnosis of with the impulsive hyperactive, or you can have combined. And so that's the kind of core definition of how we get there. You know, some things that, you know, also, I think, you know, when you hear people talk about it popularly versus a psychologist, you have to rule out alternative explanations. Because there can be many reasons that you have some of these symptoms. It could be trauma. It could be underlying depression or anxiety. And of course, those conditions, you can also have more than one at the same time. Yep. And so another element of it is that there has to be impairments in functioning. And that's something that sometimes in the popular conversation gets lost, you know, whether it's work or school or personal life or relationships that by definition, I mean, so just look at the language, deficit disorder. Right. Not exactly the world's most positive terms. <laughs> exactly. So there does have to be these, what we as psychologists call impairments in functioning. Sure. And it has to occur in two contexts, I believe, at least. If it's yeah. just one context, for example, school or just at home, that's not considered sufficient to render an actual diagnosis. Is that consistent with your understanding? Absolutely. Yes. Yes. And so it can get tricky, you know, in terms of people feeling like they have a lot of the symptoms and feeling like they're not being understood if they're not officially being diagnosed. You know, it's interesting. You hear also in the vernacular people using terms like, oh, my God, I'm so ADHD or so ADD. 
or I'm so OCD or I'm so PTSD. And they're not. In fact, these are, you know, serious conditions that require at the bare minimum a certain number of symptoms yeah. and other uh, criteria to be met for a person to actually have that. And at times, I can almost think, oh, you know, I, I kind of wish that weren't being thrown around in that way. It almost feels like it's bad PR for the actual people who are contending with these circumstances. Yeah. And I think that's a good point. And I love the, you know, kind of neurodiversity approach and the idea of brain differences and taking some of that stigma away. Mm -hmm. um, but as you're saying, there has to be this balance between as a trained professional, you know, there is a definition of what it means to have the diagnosis. Yeah. And, you know, to your point about neurodiversity, which is really a relatively new term, I recently had Temple Grandin on the mm -hmm. podcast and you're smiling and nodding because she's mm -hmm. awesome. She is one of the great spokespeople for autism, and she is a highly functioning autistic person who teaches at the university level in Colorado and presents all over the world. Even a, a movie was made about her. But one of the things that she points out is that had there been an autistic person with visual strengths on the team that was creating the space shuttle that exploded, it would not have exploded because they would have seen the problem. And I think also similarly with ADHD, there are hidden gems. I mean, if you look at throughout history, some of the people who've had ADHD, who've just excelled that they really do serve a role on a team, a neurodiverse team, every bit as much as somebody with just incredible math skills or incredible writing skills or incredible people skills. What are some of the fabulous gifts that can surprisingly accompany this a diagnosis? Well, the number one is creativity. And there is experimental research that shows that's true, that if you measure divergent thinking in people with ADHD and without ADHD, they will have higher levels of divergent thinking. They've even done some studies that with an actual ecologically valid study, we're creating a marketing project. And again, they found some benefits to the diagnosis of ADHD. But if you think about it, imagination and creativity is a distraction. And when we think about where these diagnoses usually get made in the classroom, the classroom is very much about memorizing. Right. Your imagination can be thinking about things at a much deeper level. You may be not interested in memorizing the facts, but elaborating them. And in fact, that was you know one of the ways that I came up with some of my writing about the gift of ADHD was from when I had been teaching an undergraduate class when I was a graduate student. And I had a student who could just not even pass the multiple choice questions, but he would come to the office hours and he was so engaged in the material. And in fact, he said, well, can I do some kind of research study to get my grade up to a passing grade? And he had so many powerful and deep ideas and thinking outside of the box. And it was almost a pristine example of why a really smart, bright, engaged person may not do well in the classroom. So creativity is a distraction. That's one way to think of it. I love that sentence so much. What the listener couldn't see was I was giddy when you said that creativity is a distraction because I'm thinking about creativity is probably a hallmark of being human. Mm -hmm. And if I believe that, or I should say imagination is, is a distraction, I, I believe that imagination is something that other animals, to my knowledge, I don't think we have evidence that they do it. Daniel Gilbert of Harvard University, who wrote one of my all-time favorite brain candy books called Stumbling Upon Happiness, he said that if he were asked, what is it that makes us human? It's the ability to imagine a future. And here we are stifling creative individuals who are full of imagination. I'm thinking of Hans Christian Andersen, the great storyteller, who many may remember and some may not. but there was a movie about his life where you see the children just engaging in rote memory. One plus one is two, two plus two is four. And you see him just drifting off. He had the ADHD of the inattentive type, not the hyperactive. And he was just looking out the window. And not that rote memorization is bad. I'm a big yeah. fan of it, actually. But at the expense of being able to imagine, oh, my goodness, what a loss. So you work with children and parents and adults with ADHD, what are some of the things that you often have to let parents know when they are contending with this diagnosis 
of a child who may space out or may act out due to the ADHD diagnosis? Well, I think that the most important message that I like to give is that humans, children especially, thrive on having a positive definition of themselves, on encouragement. And these are simple things and maybe even obvious, but what can happen is because of the mismatch between the school and what's happening, they often get a lot of negative feedback. And one of the effects of that is that they internalize it and then they have a kind of a negative self-image. And so one of the messages that I like to give is school is really focused on getting good study skills. And, you know, in the real world, most job descriptions involve solving problems. And at an even higher level is what we're talking about, imagination, innovation, and creating something that no one has even thought of. And that while there's the importance of accommodations and doing what it takes, you know, to get them through school, but also to find those strengths and to give that positive feedback so that they can develop self-confidence. Because think about it as an adult, how much is our, and let's take the word self-efficacy because there's a lot of research around it and how important that is to motivation, how important it is to attention. And so by diminishing that self-efficacy of the child, you're also kind of creating a vicious cycle with attention and motivation. And before we carry on self-efficacy for the listener who might not be familiar with the term is basically a sense that I can do it. Is that consistent with your understanding of self-efficacy? Yeah, so self-efficacy is a sense that I've had past successes and I can have future successes. And sometimes I use that word instead of self-esteem because there's self-esteem got a little bit of a bad rap because there was that time when everyone was getting a trophy. I kind of, you know, challenge that idea because while there may be some issues with too much unwarranted self-esteem, we know there's really negative impacts of low self-esteem. Oh my goodness, yes. Yeah, so we have to have a more complex understanding of the the research and the literature, but I do avoid it because there are people that are quick to point out that having too much self-esteem or giving people praise without any kind of data behind it can be unhelpful. But so self-efficacy is as simple as, when was the last time you had a success doing something like this? And in fact, research has shown that when kids will not start their homework, if someone will say, well, when was the last time you had success? They just have to remember a time when they could do it. And then they get that motivation to go forward. That's such a great distinction between what could be a hollow sense of self-esteem versus a solid sense of self-efficacy. And I think that's a real gift that you've just dropped for the listener. I am so grateful to you for that. I'm wanting to go back to ADHD as a term, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. If you had the power to actually change the words used to describe this phenomenon, what would you call it? One of the things that I always think of is that an attention deficit does not need to lead to an appreciation deficit because that is what we find. (laughs) So good. (laughs) And You know, I'm much more concerned about the appreciation deficit disorder, that result of that diagnosis. So if I were to come up with something, you know, just off the top of my head, I would think it could be creative, active child. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. And it it sounds like that would not be used euphemistically. You actually mean it when you say that. And I buy that. So many of the great comedians have ADHD, so many of the great artists and scientists And one of the things that I remember Tom Hartman back in the 90s said something at an ADHD conference I attended. He said, you know, very often people with ADHD either succeed hugely because they've found ways to fit in and compensate. And also the prison population comprises a spectacularly high number of people with a diagnosis as well. (laughs) What are your thoughts on that idea? There are definitely biases and who gets the diagnoses. And for example, African-American kids will show higher levels of ADHD symptoms, but they will be diagnosed with an oppositional defiant disorder versus an attention deficit disorder. And so there are certainly disparities and discrimination involved in the diagnosis. So in those terms that you know, there are reasons that you want to think of it as a a brain difference rather than defiant behavior, willfully bad behavior. So you definitely want to have that balance between 
overdiagnosing versus underdiagnosing, you know, a lot of careful consideration. And that was why we kind of started off with, you know, there is this thing called the DSM and it is a mental illness and it is something that you want to take some care in getting clarity. Hmm. And just to kind of revisit that idea, is it consistent with your idea that people with ADHD often have huge success or spectacularly underachieve if they either on their own don't find the roadmap or if they don't have perhaps the mentorship. That's been my experience with the Mm -hmm. spectrum of outcomes for people with the diagnosis that they can often exceed expectations or flail. Absolutely. And I'll talk about what I think makes those differences. And I think that, you know, an appreciation deficit disorder along with ADHD is going to lead to worse outcomes. Because again, if you have that diminished self-efficacy, that decreases motivation and it actually decreases attention. Another factor in it is what does the, uh, has to do with, you know, this is going to sound a little bit trite, but when people say, oh, you should do what you love, you know, again, that's a good idea. But for people with ADHD, it may be more important. And I, I'll even downgrade do what you mm-hmm. love to do what you're interested in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, because again, there was kind of a backlash against do what you love in the sense that I guess a bunch of millennials went to college and then said, I want to be a pastry chef. And <laughs> so there's kind of this backlash against being too specific about doing what you love. But definitely you should do what you're interested in. And I think sometimes for ADHD, you have to find that thing that aligns with your interest, your passions, and because that's where your attention comes from. In fact, we have the word hyperfocusing. that why do ADHD people hyperfocus when they're very interested, they can be very engaged. So I think it's about finding that interest, maintaining that self-esteem through finding the positives and getting the accommodations and giving them some real successes to create that self-efficacy. And then through that process, that's going to lead to better outcomes. And I love to give families that hope. I mean, like sometimes it's so funny in the middle of a session, I'll say like, well, what does your father do? Oh, well, you know, he's a salesperson, you know, so how does he spend his time? Well, he talks to people all day and he travels around to all these different places and meets with people. Okay. So he moves around a lot and he talks a lot, you know, and what are you getting sent to the principal's office for? I talk too much and I move around. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So it's exactly that strength that presents itself as a weakness in another context. And I'm just thinking about the tragedy of having that perhaps beaten out for the sake of edification or for the sake of fitting in and the losses that are incurred to the individual as well as to society at large. Exactly. Exactly. Because, and the other thing is when you think about the real world, I mean, it's what we were saying, when you go to a job, you solve problems, And many ADHD people, adults and children are great at problem solving. They love to do that. And also innovation. They're great at that. And so there's this huge gap between what happens in school and what they're capable of once they leave school. And that is one of the messages I try to give, you know, families, kids, adults. Excellent. And, you know, speaking of the messages, you've written a really cool book also available on audio called Brain Hacks. And I'm wondering if you could share a couple of your all-time favorite brain hacks as a teaser. And I do endorse this book. I think it's a great listen, but what are some of your favorite brain hacks? Some of my favorite ones are, for example, I have this one about scheduling chaos in your schedule. As humans, it's like we have these schedules, we have these plans, and then life happens. And every time it happens, we're surprised. Well, this this wasn't on my schedule. Now what do I do? (laughs) (laughs) And yet it happens every day. Some of the fun categories I invite people to actually put into their schedules. And I call one of it, I call entropy, which is just a, you know, a physical mechanism where things tend to go downhill Totally. and, and that we need to plan for that. And another one that I like is putting fun in the day. One of the things that we know is that happy, you know, when you think about what boosts your attention, happiness, fun, activity, healthy pleasures, all boost attention. And then I also maybe a little, and you don't have to do all of these, but find one that's going to break up your day a little bit and is dreaming, you know, for the daydreamer. What if you were like, okay, I have a time where I'm going to daydream. And so when you're doing your stuff and you're kind of going off on those daydreams, you're like, okay, I have that on my schedule. I'll do it later. 
it's like that anxiety intervention where you give yourself 15 minutes, a half hour a day to write down all your anxieties. And that way you just kind of schedule it and you postpone it. And then really one of my favorites. Such a I, good one. Yeah. Such I mean, because with the brain hacking, I can boost motivation. I can, one of the biggest brain hacks is if you are procrastinating is to say, I'll just do five minutes and get started because sometimes you'll keep going or to say, how good will I feel when this is over with and list all the benefits of how good it will be to get a project done. And so I really think I can help people to brain hack so that they're getting stuff done. But you, as you know, there's like 130 brain hacks in there. Yeah. So one of the questions I have people put on their schedule is what is my place in the universe? Because we also need this broader perspective, which invites the flexible thinking. And I think the thing that can be, get lost in all of this brain hacking, and, and again, there's 130 of them, we can keep going, but totally. um, <laughs> is purpose, meaning, what is the purpose of all of this? And so there needs to be this balance with the productivity, porn, and the meaningfulness of what we're doing and the purpose, because those are the most motivating things for actually getting things done. Such a great point. And I love the idea of just get started. I'm remembering when I was doing my dissertation proposal, I just got started. Mm-hmm. And the next thing I knew, eight hours had passed. And I was, you know, I was sweating bullets because I'd been typing so long and I made tracks. I mean, so, you know, five minutes became 480 minutes. It was phenomenal. The other thing that you are kind of alluding to, and I kind of want to go there for a second, and that is that people with ADHD in maybe stimulation seekers and may be more likely <laughs> are almost almost definitely more likely to be addicted to things hedonism and drugs and porn and video games i'm wondering can you say a little bit more about this and what can be done to help people live more balanced lives some of the research shows that in some populations 50% of people with ADHD are going to have a drug or alcohol disorder so that's 50%, but we're not talking about addiction to gambling, addiction to shopping, addiction to porn, addiction to devices, addiction to social media. So there's this high level of tendency for addiction, and it's right in the diagnosis of impulsiveness. Impulsive means once I start, I can't stop. Mm-hmm. And so, as you know, when we talk about addiction, and again, in the DSM, there's drug or alcohol use, drug or alcohol abuse and drug or alcohol dependence. Right. So people can, you know, smoke weed, drink alcohol, watch porn without it turning into abuse. And abuse means when you have significant impairments in functioning again. And so that would mean, you know, your family is mad at you, your spouse wants to leave, you're not showing up to work. So again, so there is this use difference between use, abuse, and dependence. And the dependence, if you were just to kind of complete the loop, what is that for the listener? So dependence is meant to be more of a a physiological change that happens in the brain where you actually need whatever that substance is to feel normal. And so when we're talking more about substances, let's say drug or alcohol, I've heard someone refer to it as the kind of Panama Canal analogy, where there comes a point in your brain where once you are going in that direction, you can't turn around. Mm. And because that you don't get the high anymore, you actually just need it to not get the terrible withdrawal. It's so poignant. So what can be done to kind of mitigate the prevalence or the possibility of a person kind of slipping from use to escalating to abuse and going into dependence? What can you say to both the person and perhaps even the partner of a person if they're partnered? So I think one of the most powerful ways is simply, this is basically called motivational interviewing. Mm -hmm. Big fan. And so it can be, instead of like in the old days, the kind of dynamics around addictions was a control battle and denial ain't just a river in Egypt. (laughs) And the new way of thinking about it is what are the benefits that you get from the substance? And that's called rolling with resistance because they're using it for a reason. It's helping them relax. It's helping them achieve things that they want. And then to say, what are the benefits of abstaining or of not using it? And, oh, well, then I can get my work done. I don't have a headache in the morning. I can drive my kids to soccer. I can do all these things. Finding the benefits of not using and 
I think that not only is it a helpful intervention, but if you can, everyone can come up with two or three, but if you can come up with 10, if you can come up with 20, that becomes very compelling that your life will look very differently when you're not abusing a substance. And another thing is in their model is self-efficacy is so important to not using a substance. The idea that I can quit, I can control myself. So again, the strength finding approach is equally relevant to addiction and substance use. I love that idea of going against the previous wisdom of just say no to drugs, which doesn't work. If it did work, it would have worked. But instead, being able for the person, the individual to look at it, like what are the benefits of using this drug? What does it solve? And what harm does it cause in their own words and for them to feel that dissonance? And over time, you know, hopefully they will tap into a decision because it's not going to happen if they don't sign on. So I love where you're going with that motivational interviewing approach. Let's continue with substance, but actually a legal and prescribed one for the condition of ADHD, which is methylphenidate, which is surprising because it's a stimulant. And I remember the first time it was explained to me, why would you give a stimulant to somebody who is bouncing off the walls? How does that work? And I was wondering if you could explain to the listener how a stimulant actually works for somebody with ADHD? First of all, since this is such a controversial issue, the one thing that I do want to say is I think that the answer is flexible thinking Mm. um, because there is a lot of debate. And my observation is that I see people who couldn't support their families if they didn't take medication. Mm -hmm. We don't want, you know, we don't want that. And I also see, of course, there are people that have very negative side effects. There's people who actually can get addicted to the medication. And there are people who habituate to it mm-hmm. and don't get the benefits. So this flexible thinking is what we want to bring to it. But in terms of you know why it works, it's in the sense that it's giving you the dopamine that is required for attention. And when you think about hyperactivity, that physical movement is also a way to boost that dopamine. And you know the inability to pay attention can be related to that too. So I think that, again, given you know, the controversial nature that really it's about flexible thinking and you know, has different reactions to everybody. And some people, it solves a lot of problems. And for some people, it doesn't. Yeah. And I'm going to share a very personal story. I was in grade school. I was assessed for which class I should be put in. And they decided based on my IQ, definitely the gifted and intelligent. I flailed there. And no one could figure out why they did all kinds of testing. And their genius diagnosis was simply, he's like Swiss cheese. He has strengths and he has weaknesses, which is really not helpful. I think all 7 billion of us kind of fall under that condition. And it wasn't until my 20s when I was diagnosed with ADHD of the inattentive type. So I had the Hans Christian Andersen looking out at trees while math was going on and kind of spacing out. And I remember when I was 27 years old, the very first time I tried Ritalin, which had been prescribed to me. And within minutes, I thought to myself, wow, this is what it feels like to have a normal brain. Mm-hmm. And I used that prescription for six years mm-hmm. while I was learning new brain hacks of my own, new techniques to function in a neurotypical world. And it was immensely helpful. No one in their right mind would believe that I have it. I'm sitting with people for 50 minutes at a time, paying incredibly close attention to every nuance that they're throwing my way and attuning. And all of that was really learned with the help of this drug, as well as, of course, some of the coaching I received and the therapies, some of which were self-taught. Others were guided with various Yodas and other mentors. So yeah, I was a problem to no one. I wasn't bouncing off the walls. So I was, I kind of fell through the cracks and I know a lot of people do. So I really am hoping to use myself as, as an example of Mm. how this can happen. Just one other note, I was not perceived as being particularly intelligent by my peers and I was a very late bloomer. And I remember I was at a funeral in my late thirties, maybe early forties. And I told somebody that I had completed my doctorate. And he just kind of looked at me, he hadn't seen me in well over 20 years. And he said, you really? He just couldn't believe that 
the Adam he had once known would go this far. And I'm just wondering, what are your thoughts on what I'm throwing out there? I have a very similar story. And, you know, I've mentioned to you that I also have ADHD. And one of the story is that one of my friends from high school ran into another friend from high school and somehow they had a conversation and someone said, oh, well, you know, she, you know, wrote some books. And then the other person said, boy, she sure hid her intelligence in high school. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> you know, and it actually wasn't true. I was not a good student until high school, but I became a good student in high school. And I really wasn't hiding it, but it, it's the general perception was that I was not a smart person. Oh, my goodness. And now here you are well published and I appreciate your work so much. And what do you think it was in your story that caused you to be able to latch onto this profession and become the success you've become? Well, I mean, one thing that I can say that I think is different than the kind of culture that we have today is between elementary school and middle school, if I was getting grades, I have no idea what kind of grades I was getting. At that time, developmentally, again, I grew up in Michigan, it might be different in, you know, other places. But, right. Yeah, you know, it was just like, it was elementary school, it was middle school, like there was no thoughts about having to be a good student. So I wouldn't even know what my grades were, they wouldn't have been probably good. But I actually think that somehow that prepared me because there was never any pressure, no talks about getting A's, that something happened when I became a freshman, what I developed was something called ambition. I felt mm -hmm. very ambitious. And what I wonder is if today, sometimes the overfocus on grades and performance sort of stifles maybe a natural developmental process that as you age, you become ambitious. And at least that was my story. I became very ambitious and I worked very hard I do think it's strange. I was really interested in psychology in high school. Someone had given me a book that was, it was so simple. It was called Go For It. Mm. And the only thing the book was about was setting goals. Mm -hmm. And that one book sort of got me very interested in psychology. And then I think I read a book that said, you know, that you can, who knows what this was, some kind of self-help book, just that you can, you can change your thoughts. And as a teenager, you're like, really? <laughs> That's an option? Yeah. You know, How and do I you do that. Yeah. And so I had this experience of like, I would be thinking about something in a negative way. And I'd be like, and then I would think about that. And, be like, and I just remember almost the first time I said to myself, I actually don't have to go down this pathway. Totally. <laughs> I just remember like the first time. And I could opt out from this thought. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and so that really kind of set my interest in psychology in place. So that, I mean, I think that was pretty much the trajectory. And I did become very ambitious and not in, even in the sense of competitive, just like, I want to go out there and do stuff. I totally get that. So one person once said it, it should be actually called selective attention disorder because people with ADHD actually can seriously double down and seriously get into a topic and rock it harder than just about anybody. It just has to be something that they really love. Exactly. And I've actually heard you say if a child is into a particular subject and less good at another, you don't, of course, completely avoid the subject that they suck at, but you really help them double down where they're strong. And I would love for you to talk a little bit about the ROI associated, uh, the return on investment associated with doubling down in the area where a child might be really strong. So again, I think that it leads to, if you began to have that sense of a real interest in something, and because of my interest, I was reading books as a high school student, lots of psychology books. I remember even just going to the local library and reading all these psychologists who we wouldn't even remember their names right now. They just happen to be in that library. And so through that process, you're developing all of those skills. You're developing your attention in something that you are really passionate about. And then, of course, the other thing is, you know, this idea that, again, coming back to self-efficacy, you have to have some successes. And it is directly tied to motivation and attention. And, and think about it, mood. I mean, how good can you feel about yourself mm. if you're always patching up your weakness right. and not building on your strength? And so we're looking at mood, motivation, even just attention span, because an anxiety, if you have this anxiety that I can't do this, I can't do this, that's going to interfere with our attention. And so it's just really the difference between building up the other executive functions that can support your success in life. 
And I'm glad you brought up executive functions. If you could break down for the listener what executive functioning is and how it's related to ADHD and success in the mainstream and how important it is to have these on board. Yeah. So you can break down executive functioning into five different components. Some people break it out into 12, but for simplicity's sake. So, I mean, the first one is going to be, can you pay attention? (laughs) And then the second one is organization and planning. And then a third one is flexible thinking. And then a fourth one is your mood. Can you manage your mood? And then the last one is the impulse control. And so executive functioning is, of course, much broader than ADHD. And so, for example, the mood component is going to disrupt attention, yet it's not at all a part of the diagnostic criteria for ADHD, but we're measuring attention. So managing mood is going to be very closely related to the other executive functions. So I see them as all interrelated in the sense of, again, if you can plan, if you can use that planning executive function, which can be as simple as setting goals. And so when you're setting those goals, that can be a backstop on the impulsiveness because you can say, oh, is this going to interfere with me getting my goal or is it going to help me get my goal? And, you know, I mentioned that when I felt like I became ambitious, you know, I, you know, was goal driven and that built my planning and that built my ability to avoid impulsive distractions because there was this underlying (laughs) planning capacity. That is so consistent with my own arc and my story. So, Laura, it's my contention that people with ADHD need to exert so much energy to fit into a neurotypical world that it's as if their brains are gas guzzlers relative to the neurotypicals who are maybe getting, let's say, 30 miles a gallon, that those of us with ADHD might be getting like nine miles a gallon and at the end of the day, be really tired because there's so much neuroactivity that is required to kind of override the tendency to space out or want to distract. What is that consistent with your understanding of ADHD? It's definitely consistent with my understanding of ADHD. And it's definitely my personal experience too. Yeah. And so I imagine that could even bleed into sleep, like so much neural activity is required to do what are ostensibly ordinary things, you know, going through the errand list, going through the house chores that a person might need more ramp down time in order to have a good night's sleep. Is that also possible? Absolutely. Absolutely. And yeah, I mean, I think, and that's hard because I know you said you were a parent too. It's hard because you got to get your kids to bed, but yes. I mean, I think, I mean, I think the best thing that can happen is like, if you take that time at night and I, I think I alluded to this, that like, I don't take the medication, but I brain hack like crazy. So, mm. but that has its own toll too. So I will do guided imagery, meditation, all of those things. And some days I think, God, I spent so much time managing this. And I I don't know if I said this part to you, but like, I do know that I will go on medication at some point. And I'm just like waiting for that point (laughs) just because I observe the habituation. And so I'm like, how can I optimize that time where it's going to habituate and extend it? And I sort of have this idea that when things fall apart, that's when I go on the medication Yes, that's my own personal feeling about it, that I'm trying to brain hack myself as far along in my lifespan as possible. Oh, for sure. You know, I'm going to share with you one of my all-time favorite brain hacks. I'm not sure if you're familiar with this concept. I learned it in improv of all places, which I think is something that everybody should do, but especially people with ADHD, not only because it's fun, but because it helps to really be attentive to the moment as you can't really plan in, in the context of improv. But the thing I learned was how to listen without interfering with my own thoughts. And that is when somebody else is speaking, that I somehow hear my own voice saying what they're saying. And it takes me out of being just a passive listener into really an active encoder into my brain. So as you're talking, I'm hearing my voice and your voice is merging. And I'm able to just kind of not space out, if that makes sense. Does that yeah, one, it totally makes sense. But psychoanalysis is there's this book called Listening with the Third Ear by Theodore Reich. And in that book, he says that Freud says the way you tap into someone's unconscious is through what he calls free floating attention. Yes. And 
I think that free-floating attention has something to do with ADHD. And I just, again, you know, throughout my career, some of the best group therapists had ADHD. And if you think about how do you be a group therapist, you have to have, you can't be zooming in. And so just an observation, if you ever want to dig into, it's an old book, but. I love that idea of listening with a third ear. And, you know, as I mentioned, you know, I was working with teens who were on probation, who were gang affiliated in group settings. And oftentimes they had ADHD. So it was like having a bunch of monkey minded individuals in the room and me attending to them. By the way, monkey mind is not me just saying that somebody has has the mind of a monkey. It's an old Buddhist concept. Before I get into some of the other possible helpers along the way, let's talk about psychotherapy and coaching. It's my sense that both of these can actually bolster the prefrontal cortex, which is largely responsible for these executive functions. And I'm wondering, what do you know about psychotherapy as and of course, ADHD coaching and how it helps people boost their executive functioning. Well, so developmentally, what we know is that a really key factor to boosting executive functioning is called scaffolding. And generally, that would mean like for you see it mostly, let's say, in kindergarten, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it should go on developmentally throughout our lifespan where someone is like holding a structure for you while you're on this learning curve. And that learning curve, if you have a diagnosis of ADHD, is going to be a lot longer. You know, you can master some of these executive functions with that scaffolding. And so this means supports from the outside. And of course, that's what therapy is. And coaching, I think, is more direct in terms of being able to help. You know, for me, I use what I call the six super skills in what's called ADHD coaching. And I start with finding the strengths. I see that as primary. Then we set goals. We're directly building that planning ability. If you say to a kid, this is how we're going to develop your planning. We're going to get out all of your homework assignments for the week, and we're going to map them out on a grid when you should do your homework. And that's helpful. It is helpful. And that's a good thing. But if you say, what goals do you have for yourself? Well, I want to do this. Well, how are you going to get there? What are you going to do? And they're goals that they want for themselves. So when goal setting is the same thing as planning, you can begin to build some of these executive functions in a way that feels more motivating. That is so good. And one of the things that I find myself thinking about as you're describing bolstering one's executive functioning is that there needs to be, from where I sit, an interpersonal component. I don't believe an app or a video or a book alone can do it, particularly for children with ADHD who need to know that another person cares. You may have heard that old aphorism. I don't care how much you know until I know how much you care. And then, you know, Mr. Miyagi and, you know, Daniel-san will begin to wax on and wax off, so to speak. And it's been my contention. That is a critical element, that interpersonal, perhaps mentor to mentee or teacher to student, therapist to client, beautiful attunement and high quality relationship as a portion of the healing process. What are your thoughts? Well, absolutely. I mean, and because it is through our attachment that we can internalize the holding, holding our thoughts rather than, you know, oh, I feel like doing this, I'm going to do this. And so through this kind of internalization of a present other, And not only is that going to regulate our mood because that's comforting, it's soothing, it is a resource and it can, you know, manage, you know, the rough waves of the emotions that go along with day-to-day life and having a diagnosis. And so I think it is very important and plays a critical role with treating ADHD. And, you know, there's another component, which is called rejection sensitivity dysphoria, which in fancy terms is basically saying that children with ADHD oftentimes receive a criticism with a greater intensity than the general population and how important it is to really tap in. Sometimes I think that a big portion of the ADHD is actually the parents not paying enough attention or enough quality attention to the child. And I was wondering if you could speak about perhaps a little bit about both rejection, sensitivity, dysphoria, as well as parents attending to their children in a way that would be most helpful. 
you know, again, the research shows that an ADHD child is going to get a lot more negative feedback over the course of their life. However, in terms of rejection sensitivity dysphoria, there's actually no real solid studies associating it with ADHD. And I don't doubt that there is a subset. Surprisingly, there is one study that was done, and it wasn't on rejection sensitivity, with undergraduate males. That was all they could find in the study for ADHD. And they actually found something reversed to rejection sensitivity. Really? Which was that they were somehow overconfident. And there's many (laughs) different ways that you could explain it. And it could be, you know, it could have to do with, you know, white males and this kind of overcompensation, maybe, Mm. or this idea of, you know, the the study doesn't explain the why. It just showed this one finding. So it's certainly not a universal experience of people with ADHD. And I think it will relate to different subtypes. But I mean, we do know that they get more negative feedback throughout their life. And then the inability to, you know, regulate the emotion as well, it can, you know, become ruminative. But I, I do want to just, you know, that the, in terms of the research, I think there's still as many questions as there are answers about the relationship between ADHD and rejection sensitive dysphoria. But in terms of the parenting, there's definitely a you know, that again, if a, the negative interactions, control battles that can happen between a parent and child are going to create their own whole cascade of symptoms, which will interfere with attention and motivation. You know, one of my favorite concepts in the world of psychology is the five to one ratio that in a relationship, we need five positives to every negative just to be in a net positive state. And that three positives to one actually kind of cancels it out. So really to get to the net positive, we still need two more. And I was recently hosting a teen and sex expert named Shafia Zaloon, who said she believes it's all the more important that we do something more like an 11 or 12 to one ratio of positive to negative for children. And we're talking about neurotypicals. And here you are telling me something very important, which is that people with ADHD receive a lot of negative feedback over the course of their lives. And I imagine very much to their detriment. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering how can a parent who is understandably becoming infuriated with their child at times, like how many times do I need to tell you this to the child? How can you advise a parent for a brain hack that will help them stay in the positive zone? I would think of not only being able to adopt and kind of an encouraging approach. And as you're saying, the five to one, it's almost like whatever that ratio is, randomly admitting those positive things. And, you know, what I have seen is that they just have to be simple things like, I really like how you did that or great work, or I see you're really trying or keep going, you're doing good or, or inquiry in the sense of what's something you did right this week? What's something you're proud of? What's working in your life? What's a problem that you overcame? Well, how did you overcome that problem? What strength do you have? What helped you to overcome that? And really searching for those kinds of positives and even having them remember times when they're most appreciated. And, you know, I'll tell you a story that it makes me sad, which is Mm. because I use a strength-based approach, I ask every client, when was the time you felt the most appreciated? And the thing that is really sad is that is not an easy question Mm. for people to answer. And I've had people sit there and, and by the way, objectively, you might be like, this is an awesome person and they struggle. And one of the strange things is that so many times it doesn't come from something that, you know, their parents did. They'll say there was this one teacher who thought I was great, or there was this one coach. So, I mean, I think that, you know, as I said, I don't think an attention deficit should lead to an appreciation deficit. I think that globally, we have an appreciation deficit disorder. And in fact, you know, there's been some research that shows that globally, we believe that the way you take a person and you make them a better person is to find their weaknesses and patch them up versus the way we make a person a better person is find their strengths and to build on them. It's not necessarily like blaming like people are bad parents. There seems to be this inherent model that we patch up weaknesses to make people better people. And it makes so much sense given the fact that all of us humans have been the beneficiaries from our ancestors of this negativity bias for the sake of our survival. Like if we hear hooves, 
we think of something that could kill us rather than, oh my gosh, it's just a cute horse coming by because those who didn't have that negativity bias tended to die and their bloodline did not succeed long-term. And yet it really is so imperative that we learn to override that negativity and be willing to, yeah, not ironically or sarcastically embrace an appreciation model and because appreciation appreciates or what you <laughs> what you appreciate appreciates and, and it's yeah it's so great i just have to do a little bit of a sidebar with you right now can you just give a list of some of the famous people throughout time who have had adhd or at least who we suspect in all likelihood did yeah so of course adhd as a diagnosis didn't exist a long time ago but right. Yeah, but many people, for example, will say Edison. And mm. the, one of the legends around him, and I love this, is that he would work on one invention, he would get bored, and he wouldn't finish <laughs> it, and he would go and he'd work on another invention. And then he'd get bored with that and he'd go work on another invention. And actually, this really maps on really well to the stages of creativity. And so, for example, the first stage of creativity is preparation. And so this is what we think of as like, I'm studying it. I know what I'm doing. I know my material. But the second stage of creativity is incubation. And that incubation means we would think of maybe like a, a duck sitting on an egg. You're literally sitting on it. Or when we say to someone, sleep on it, that the incubation process of creativity happens when we turn our attention away from the problem. And then the third stage of creativity is inspiration. And that's that aha moment. And it actually, you know, I think of, um, I think it was Archimedes who, when he discovered that you could, you know, find out how the crown displaced the water and he ran down the street saying, Eureka. <laughs> and it's, it was in when he was relaxed and in the bath that he had that inspiration. And that's very, you know, many people recount. That's where they get those breakthrough insights. And then after you have that inspiration, then, of course, you have to apply it and then test it and see if it actually works. So what you see right in the middle of the stages of creativity is the inattention of incubation and then the hyperactivity of inspiration. Mm -hmm. And because I take such great delight listing the VIPs who've had it, who else comes to mind just so that the listeners who may be feeling dejected, maybe somebody has a recent diagnosis for one of their children and is thinking, oh my gosh, we're doomed. Who else, if you were just to give kind of a quick laundry list without even necessarily yeah. describing them, okay. who else? Okay. Is well, I mean, a lot of people would say Einstein. Mm -hmm. He was a terrible student. Richard Branson has been very public about his age. I love that. So that's a confirmed kind of case. So I think that you know, throughout history, you know, and again, we didn't necessarily have this diagnosis throughout history, but, you know, someone might say Tesla in the sense that he was also, you know, not a good student. And there was one time where he jumped off of a building and almost, you know, severely injured himself. Yeah, right. And if, so there's all these stories about these kinds of behaviors that, you know, lead to the impulsiveness and self-injury. Sure. But if you, I mean, if you think about it, that is also the same process by which you evolve a discipline where you go into the unknown, which is so much different from our model of memorization and studying. Definitely. Now, I want to just go back to stage in my life. During my postdoc, I was working with gang-affiliated teens who were on juvenile probation for making bad decisions, obviously. And I think that there is a bridge to be made. You just were kind of talking about the impulsive nature of someone with ADHD. And I would think it'd be very helpful to do what I was doing with these children. That was in a non-judgmental way, evaluate decision-making processes, doing a really thorough post-game analysis, like, Hey, you know, what got you to do that? And what was good and what was bad about doing that? And if you could do it again, how would you, would you do it the same? Would you do it differently? If, do you ever do these kind of post-game analyses with around decision-making processes to help foster lower rates of impulsiveness? Yeah, it's funny because I call it instant replay, <laughs> which I, I take from sports broadcasting. That's where I get my therapy interventions from. Totally. You know, so one of the things I'll do is be very specific, very concrete, not talking in abstractions or generalities, or you should do this, or you should do that. What happened in that moment? Do the instant replay slow motion. Well, they said this, 
And then I got mad. And then I said this and they got even more mad. Okay. So this is what happened. And was there anything positive that came out of that? Okay. Well, I didn't storm out of the room and slam the door. I stayed there and, you know, had the conversation. Okay. And so what is an action step that you can take that next time you won't do this again? And, Mm -hmm. you know, and so one of the things that I teach people is called surfing the waves of emotion, that when you feel that anger, just imagine it's a wave and just experience it getting higher and higher. And if you just take some belly breaths and breathe into your belly, you know, that those emotions can subside. And that's a way to kind of focus internally rather than to just start speaking your mind, giving people a piece of your mind. (laughs) That's such a great thing. And one of my favorite ideas is that between the stimulus and the response, there is a space. And within that space, there is choice. I believe that comes from Viktor Frankl. And one of the things that I hear you doing is increasing the space between the stimulus and the response and helping people. I see it with adults all the time. She made me do that. It's like, well, did she? Let's talk about the stimulus and the response and your choice in responding that way. And I love that you have this instant replay. I think that's just brilliant. And I think sports metaphors apply brilliantly. One of the things that I want to also just kind of mention was that when you were kind of going down the list of people who have had ADHD throughout history, it was largely male. It was entirely male. Is the incidence to your knowledge, is it boys more frequently diagnosed with ADHD than say girls or women? Yes. And historically that disparity was mostly boys and that, that for women and girls, that because, you know, they may manage their hyperactivity in different ways or because they're more socially compliant can be that the ADHD can be missed. And so there is certainly, you know, an effort to raise awareness about what ADHD can look like in girls and to get evaluations. And that certainly many of the diagnoses lean towards the ADHD inattentive type and that there can be like, so for example, with girls that are athletes, successful athletes, that hyperactivity can be masked by their success in sports. It can't, you know, so there's many reasons that it's missed. And also I think awareness to begin to recognize and to maybe even look for it when there's poor grades or other things and to not just think of it as the boy's disorder. Totally. Yeah. And there's this concept in, in our field, uh, just letting the listener know that you're familiar with called diagnostic overshadowing, where we can, because a person is male or female, tend to overlook a diagnosis mm-hmm. or misdiagnose in general, just because of some type of confirmation bias that occurs in all humans. And it's really important for us to be able to really uh, consult, to really carefully evaluate. You're bringing up something very big. Laura, is there anything I haven't yet asked but should have? I think that maybe I would just want to end with what I write as the six super skills and just to finish that off because I think I started it and didn't. Sure. Which is, so I start with finding the gifts and then setting goals. And the thing that I didn't get to is probably the biggest brain hack for people with ADHD is called chunking. What's Mm. the smallest step I can do? What is the next step? And that that can be so motivating to be like, you know what? I don't have to hit a home run. I can hit a single or a double. And that that in itself can increase that motivation to get started. So like a lot of times in sessions, I'll say on a scale of one to 10, what's your motivation to do this homework assignment? And they'll be like three. I'm like, okay, well, what if I said, what would be your motivation to get started, but you would just have to do it for 15 minutes and then you could stop. And they would say, oh, okay, a seven. And I'll say, well, what if you would just start it, do it for 15 minutes, and then you'd give yourself a reward and they could choose that reward. Then what's your level of motivation? And then it goes up to an eight or nine. So chunking is, I think, the simplest, easiest, non-intellectually complex way to boost motivation. And so then after chunking comes boosting motivation. And that is some of the things that we've talked about in terms of what are the benefits of getting this done? What are the benefits of getting your homework done? Oh, okay. Then I will have it off my back. It won't be hanging over my head. I can go watch that TV show that I wanted to without feeling guilty. And in this part, I would encourage people to come up with as many benefits as you can. That is probably the simplest way to increase motivation and to think of like, how good will I feel when this is done? One of the things people can say to themselves is focus on completion, because what you do with procrastination is you focus on how much you don't feel like doing it. 
And so if we can just shift that awareness to how good will you feel when this is done? And that can boost motivation. And then there's mood management. And then the last one is attention management. And so for mood management, it can be as simple as, for example, the research has shown that the more precise words we use for emotions, the more we can regulate them. So I even write in the six super skills that go to the dictionary online, put in mad, look at how many, you know, of the 30 to 50 words you get, what's the right word. And that has been shown to help us to manage our emotions. And then the last one is just entirely science-backed. It's how do we increase our attention? You know, when you asked about the medication, I think it was John Rady in one of his TED Talks said that exercise is like a little bit of Ritalin and a little bit of Prozac. So, you know, when we're talking about the medication, that exercise is one of the biggest brain hacks for increasing attention. Second is stress management. Stress interferes with our attention. And then also taking breaks. It seems obvious, but what we don't give a lot of attention to is attention restoration. We need to restore our attention. And so that that means taking breaks. And then, of course, getting sleep. If you have a sleep deficit, that's going to impair your attention. So some of these are so basic, but we don't think about them. And then nature, you know, when you said, I was looking at the trees in math class, research shows that not only time in nature, but views in nature increases attention. And theoretically, we don't know why, but it may be that nature, because it invites this diffuse attention, restores our attention. And then this one's obvious, limiting technology. We know that technology disrupts our attention massively. In fact, Adam Gosley, Dr. Adam Gosley has said that he thinks there's a crisis of cognition created by technology addictions. And then what I've been saying all along in research supports, interest increases our attention. In fact, one of the synonyms of interest is attentiveness. They may be one in the same thing. So that's why I keep emphasizing, find what you love, do what you love, find something you're interested in. And then happiness. One study showed that giving doctors even a lollipop, you don't have to go to therapy for 30 years and figure it all out to be happy. Simple, healthy pleasures boosts our happiness, which increases our attention. And you said giving doctors a lollipop or the doctor giving the patient a lollipop? Well, that's the joke. It was giving the doctors the lollipop. And so... In that book, they were saying that maybe we need to give the doctors the lollipops and not the kids. <laughs> so it's uh, yeah. the reason I asked is because, you know, I've come across some research that indicates that happier doctors are more likely to render an accurate diagnosis than Absolutely. unhappy doctors. You just threw down so much good stuff. I just need a <laughs> comment on just some of the things that you said. First of all, chunking. Oh, my goodness. Yes. Think of it like a pizza. You would not eat an entire pizza in one bite. You need to eat it one slice and one bite at a time. And I remember when my dissertation advisor said, Adam, don't trip. Think of this as a series of 12 page papers. And I was like, I could do 12 page papers. I write out 12 page papers all the time. And she said, don't worry, it's going to be great. 12 pages at a time. So that was massive. I also think about the accuracy of naming things. One of my great quotes, and I don't know to whom it's attributable, but that all wisdom comes from the accuracy of naming a thing and naming our emotions accurately is so critical. It's akin to scratching an itch uh, that you just can hardly. And once you've named it, that seems to take the sting out of about 50% of it. You were kind of alluding to the idea of fun. And I think that parents and teachers need to realize that humor and fun are necessary to Stanford business school instructors have just written a book on humor. It's called humor seriously. And I'm halfway through it and loving it. And they're basically stating a business case for why there has to be humor in the workplace. And of course it has to be appropriate, but there needs to be humor as well. And I think it's all the truer for somebody with ADHD. If it's not fun, you're not going to have their attention. <laughs> and last but not least, you said, yeah, it's common sense. And there's such a chasm between common sense and common practices we know. And it's just doing those things that we know we need to do that makes all the difference. But last but not least, you were talking about being out in nature. And I'm fascinated by this concept, often referred to as biophilia. Mm -hmm. And one of our colleagues locally, Dr. Jonah Paquette, has written a book on awe and how being out in nature incurs awe, which seems to be one of the great keys to happiness and being open to being awestruck, which is the title of his book, which is outstanding. And I highly recommend it. But oh my gosh, Laura, I'm loving what you're dropping. And 
Oh my gosh, I'm having such a blast. So this is actually officially the final question of our interview. And that was, if somehow you were endowed with the magical abilities to confer upon all people with ADHD, a skill and or an awareness, what would that be? And what do you imagine would be the impact on the individual as well as perhaps society at large if you could somehow confer upon all people with ADHD that skill or awareness? I think that it would definitely be the skill of feeling confident and having the self-efficacy that no matter what the setback, I know that I have the strength to get through this. And and also maybe this general concept of what I call mind building. You know, we talk about bodybuilders, they have to lift weights, they get bigger than strong. And that this kind of value of effort that every time you solve a problem, you build your executive functioning. And so we began to think of problems, not as like, why is this happening to me? Mm-hmm. But we began to think of it as this is going to make me stronger. And, you know, we're recording this during COVID and I have thought so much, like I'm going to be so strong when COVID is over, you know, yeah. <laughs> because we're having to really manage through so many challenges. We are lifting really heavy weights. And that's true for ADHD people in ordinary times, the weights that they're lifting are heavier for them and that they can turn this around. And to think of that effort as building that strength, building their mind. And it's basically what I'm saying is a growth mindset, which is not to diminish the real neurological differences of a person with ADHD. They're very real, but also that, you know, find that zone of genius, find the thing that you're good at and embrace this value of mind building. I love that idea. And you're talking so much about us being meaning-based creatures. You know, this thing, whatever the challenge might be, the meaning that we establish around it changes the entire outcome. Recently, I had Michael Mead on the podcast who said, we're not homo sapiens, we're homo symbolicus. We are creatures that establish our meaning-based creatures. And you're speaking to that idea. And I think that's brilliant. And I love the idea of just giving everybody self-efficacy as a platform to build on. Wouldn't that be a great world if all people with ADHD were able to leverage their skills from that space, from your mouth to the ears of the masses? Thank you so much, Laura, for sharing your wisdom and just yourself on this episode. This is great. Oh, I loved it too, Adam. Thank you. This is Dr. Adam Dorsey thanking you for listening to Super Psyched. If you know anyone who might like it or who might benefit from listening, share it. And if you like the episode, please hit subscribe 